Psalm 11 asks the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do or what can the righteous do? Now, the context of the psalm is the question is being asked of David by those who are encouraging him to flee in the face of difficulty and opposition. The question is meant to pile on to David's fear that he already has. So his decisions will be made through fear and through terror of what's going on around him. The question is, if the foundations of law and justice and morality and society itself are being destroyed, what will happen to the righteous? They're trying to convince David the foundations of society are crumbling and when they collapse, there'll be no hope for the righteous. So he just as well flee and hide now before it happens. There won't be any judges to plead their cause. And even if there were judges to plead their cause, there wouldn't be an actual standard of right and wrong for them to judge by. Now, the question asked of David in the psalm is asked by those with a defeatist and an alarmist attitude. The very same defeatist and alarmist attitude we often see in our world today. We see it in political pundits on both the liberal and conservative sides of the aisle. They're constantly bombarding us with messages of doom, gloom, and despair over people on the other side of the aisle. This is seen in the culture warriors who tell us this next big thing coming is either going to save the nation or it's going to destroy the nation. We see it constantly on social media through people who post stories with dubious origins and sketchy facts that are meant to stir up fear, anger, or anxiety within us. We see it all over the place, and unfortunately we see it in the church as well. While there have been many times I've seen it throughout my lifetime, the Y2K scare, uh, the Jewish calendar mystery knowledge, you see things like that all of the time. It has ramped up significantly since COVID came to America in 2020. And the ways we've seen it since 2020 are varied and never-ending. The reality about all of this is is that it is little more than political and theological chicken littling. It is people running around screaming, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And the goal is to get us to react or overreact to the issue at hand in the way the person asking the question wants us to respond. Make no mistake, those asking it, those promoting it, they're trying to control us. They are trying to but to maneuver us to do what they want us to do. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It is a good idea for us to know what's going on in the world. God's word tells us it's good to be wise and watchful and aware of the times we're living in. It speaks of the children of Ishakar in a good way, the people who understood the times and they understood what Israel must do. They're promoted as a people we should kind of be like. The problem is the panic this causes to well up within us and the way this panic influences us to act in ways and and keep us from trusting in God and doing his will in our lives. The statement or the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do has often been used in sermon titles, in emails to support this sort of desperate near panic line of thought. However, those who use that line in effort to stir up fear and anxiety within people, they typically forget the context of Psalm 11. The very next verse after the question says this. If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Well, they're going to trust in God. For God is still in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is still in heaven. His eyes still see. His eyes still test the sons of mankind. David wasn't fleeing in this time of fear and anxiety Because he knew God was sovereign over the world in which he lived. Now, David, be sure to understand this. David does not doubt the possibility the foundations are in the process of being destroyed. David doesn't doubt the brokenness of the world in which he lives. But David's answer to the panic, the question, is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign despite the fact the foundations are being destroyed. God is sovereign despite the fact the world is broken. David's understanding of God as sovereign was key to him not panicking and running away as his advisors told him to do. As disciples of Jesus, we must have the same understanding of God as sovereign as David had. 
Because the reality is, the foundations are being destroyed. The reality is, the world is massively broken. And it is not getting any better. The fact of the matter is, God is still sovereign over a broken world. God is still sovereign over a world where the foundations are being destroyed. In fact, as we'll see tonight, in many cases, the foundations are not being destroyed by the unbelieving world. In many cases, the foundations are being destroyed by God himself. God is the one breaking up the foundations. God is the one who's causing things to fall apart in a culture and a society. He is sovereign over all things, even the foundations being destroyed at times. So why would God do that, we might ask? What would be the cause of God breaking up the foundations, God causing this sort of cultural crisis that we might see in our world today? Open your Bible to Psalm, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 3. We're going to look at Isaiah 3 and 4. should be on page 519. When you find that, I'm going to get a stand on the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 3. For behold, the Lord God of armies is is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the entire supply of bread and the entire supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the esteemed person, the counselor and And the expert artisan, the skillful enchanter, and I will make mere boys their leaders and mischievous children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each by one another and each one by his neighbor. The youth will assault the elder and the contemptible person will assault the one honored. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your authority. He'll protest on that day saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me as ruler of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces testifies against them and they display their sin like Sodom and do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have done evil to themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well for them. For they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly for them. For what he deserves will be done to him. My people. Their oppressors treat them violently and women rule over them. My people. Those who guide you, lead you astray. And confuse the directions of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and leaders of his people. It is you. Who have devoured the vineyards. The goods are stolen from the poor. The goods stolen from the poor in your houses. What do you mean crushing my people and oppressing the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of armies. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty. And walk with heads held high. And seductive eyes. And go along with mincing steps. And jingle the anklets on their feet. The Lord will afflict the scalp. Afflict the scalp. The daughters of Zion with scabs. And the Lord will make their foreheads bare. On that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festive robes, outer garments, shawls, purses, papyrus garments, undergarments, headbands and veils. Uh, Now it will come about that instead of balsam oil, there will be a stench instead of a belt, a rope instead of well set hair, plucked out scalp instead of fine clothes. A robe of sackcloth and a branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and she will sit deserted on the ground. For seven women will take hold of one man on that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. On that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the beauty of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that the one who is left in in Zion... And remains behind in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. 
When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the entire area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy and there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day, refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. Title of the message tonight is Culture in Crisis. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for all you've given and done. Thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to gather and to study your word, to sing your praise, to to be together and to be with you in your house. Father, tonight as we look at this passage, open our hearts and minds to receive it. Father, strengthen our view of you. Father, so that we would see you as sovereign as you truly are and we would not be afraid. That, Lord, when we hear the people say, what will the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? Our immediate response, Father, would not be one of fear, panic, anger, anxiety. Rather, it would be the Lord is in his holy temple. God is still king over all the earth. Father, help us to look to see what you're doing in these times, to see how you're at work and what you might be doing in breaking up the foundations so that people could be brought to a saving faith in Jesus. Strengthen us. And the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us to be strong in you in the power of your might. Father, let us be lights that shine ever so brightly for Jesus in these dark days. We love you. We praise you. Fill me tonight with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Have your way in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Now, Isaiah 3 and 4 go together. You see this by the fact that chapter 4, verse 1 is a continuation of the thought from chapter 3, verse 26. You have the women and all of these things are happening to them in verse 26. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, the seven women, it's a continuation of what was talked about at the end of chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, on that day. On what day? Well, on the day described in chapter 3. So Isaiah 3 and 4 all go together. It's one long story, one long passage. Remember, the verse and chapter divisions are not original, not inspired by God. Someone did it many, many hundreds of years after the Bible was put together in the form in which we have it now. So all of this goes together. Now, in light of all of this going together, notice how chapter 3 starts. For behold, the Lord God of armies is going to remove. God is going to remove something. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 18. On that day the Lord will take away. God is going to take something away. When you look at this chapter, what you see is God is removing and taking away things in the culture of the world in which they live. The culture of Judah, Jerusalem and Judah. Specifically, He is taking away the foundations of things that are important to them. Things that they Either they need or they feel they need in order to do and live the way they're supposed to live. God is removing the foundations. God is the one taking them away. God is intentionally doing it. Right? It's not God made a decision and the accidental recourse of that was the foundations are being destroyed. God is intentionally attacking and destroying the foundation of this culture. God is intentionally putting them in crisis situation. Why? Well, God is taking things away to give them something else. Chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 3 deals with the things He's taking away. Chapter 4, verse 2 deals with what God is giving them. He's giving them the branch. The branch is a messianic title. We'll talk about that in a minute. So what God is doing is He is taking away all of the things they trust in. So he can give them Jesus. He is taking away the things keeping them from salvation. So they will turn to the one thing that will give them salvation. God is taking away things they feel that they need. So they will put their hope and trust in the coming Messiah. Which is the one thing they actually need. In our day we see God doing the same sort of thing as well. God is sovereign and so he can do anything he wants to do. God is perfectly capable of destroying the foundations of our culture. So that people will be left, in a sense, destitute and hopeless. And they will turn to the one thing they truly need, which is Jesus. In our day, we could say God removes things. God takes things away. God destroys foundations. He puts the culture in crisis so they will see their need for Jesus. 
So our key truth from that idea is this. God puts cultures in crisis so they will be ripe for redemption. God puts cultures in crisis so they will be ripe for redemption. Notice how we see this truth in these chapters. First, God removes cultural stability. Verses 1 through 7, Isaiah explains how God is going to destroy the foundations of their society. In essence, God is going to destroy everything that makes their society and really all societies stable. Right. So what is God going to, to do, remove, to destroy their stability? God removes economic stability. God is going to remove from Jerusalem and, Ju- and Judah the supply and support, the entire supply of bread, the entire supply of water. Now, the use of supply and support seems to indicate that he is going to remove the food and water they currently have, their supply, and he's going to remove their ability to get more food and water, their support. Right? God is bringing about economic devastation to this city, to this culture. Food and water represent the basic necessities of life. The necessities they have, they're going to use up and they're going to have almost no ability to gain any more. This is God. This is God doing it. God is removing the economic stability from this culture to make this culture ripe for the redemption of the Messiah. God removes leadership stability. Leaders, a culture needs leaders to survive, to be stable. So in verse 2 it says the mighty man and the warrior. This is all again part of what he's going to remove. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the esteemed person, the counselor, the expert artisan, skillful enchanter. A, a culture to be stable, it needs all manner of leaders. It needs religious leaders. It needs martial leaders like military and police. It needs political leaders. It needs leaders in arts and education. It needs regular people who are held in high esteem but have influence on the culture around them. And part of what puts a culture in crisis is when their leadership is removed. Now, Something that's interesting about this is while God is removing the leadership, he's not removing it in the same way he is removing the, the bread, the water. And removing the bread and the water, he's removing it so there's none. There is no bread, there is no water. He's taking it completely away. But God doesn't remove the leaders in this way. It's not that there are no leaders. It's that God removes the good leaders. Right? Notice what it says in verse 4. And I will make mere boys their leaders. And mischievous children will rule over them. Now the picture here isn't that there are ten-year-olds who are ruling the nation. The picture instead is what we might call a man-baby. Right? Full-grown men age-wise, but they are emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually boys. Right? They have the, the spiritual, the emotional, the intellectual maturity of a child. And the idea of these leaders being mischievous children is they seems to be that they use they arbitrarily use their power for their own pleasure, their own purposes, and their own agendas. When you have a culture where the people in charge, the people leading aren't full grown, aren't emotionally and spiritually and mentally mature. You have children running things. When you have mischievous children running things, they're just using their power to do whatever they want to do, whatever benefits them, whatever fits their agenda, whatever accomplishes their will. And when a culture's leaders act like children, act like immature, spoiled, mischievous children, It leaves the culture without stability, without the stability it needs to have the sort of human flourishing we might like. And the reality is that is God removing the leaders to intentionally put the culture in crisis so they will be ripe for redemption. God removes societal stability. Verse five, the people will be oppressed each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will assault the elder, and the contemptible person will assault the one honored. One foundation, one of the foundation blocks to society is the way people treat one another. 
What happens when God removes the societal stability? Well, there is oppression, there is lawlessness, there is anarchy, and there is violence throughout the society. Every society has a measure of these things. I mean, you can't, people are people no matter the place. And you can't legislate those things out of existence because people are sinful and depraved and will do bad things. But this isn't a, this isn't a picture of a largely good culture that has a few bad apples. Rather, this pictures the society, the culture is given over to this. Where what you see on the regular is lawlessness abounding. What you see on the regular is oppression of one group over another group. What you see on the regular is, is anarchy and violence. And I would almost say that it pictures the oppression and the lawlessness and the anarchy and the violence as being accepted. As that's just the way things are. Not it's happening and everybody's like, gosh, this is terrible. We need to do something. It's everybody sees it and it's just like, what a world, Right. They're just accepting and embracing of it as the way things are. And a society and a culture where you see the societal stability removed and this sort of anarchy reigning, it's a place where God has done it. God has removed the stability of the culture so they will be ripe for redemption found in Jesus. God removes optimistic stability. Verse 6 When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your authority. He'll protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me as ruler of the people. The stability of a culture is often built on a foundation of optimism in the culture. For a culture not to crumble in the midst of bad times, which again, any culture will have, there has to be a belief that things will get better. There has to be a belief that, yes, things may be bad now, but it's not always going to be this way. The world will turn around. What we see in verse 6 and 7 is a sense of hopelessness gripping the people. The hopelessness is seen in those who are looking for anyone, someone, anyone to to be a leader, to rise up and, and fix the problems. The hopelessness is seen in the fact no one wants to be a leader. No one wants to rise up and do the work to fix it. Rather than want to rise up and fix it, they just say, there's no way. I can't. There's no help. There's no hope. People will be poor and they will look to anyone who seems to have the money uh, as they want that person who maybe they have some sense to take charge and fix it and they won't do it. When a culture wallows in pessimism, And hopelessness. It's because God has removed the optimistic stability. In an effort to make them ripe for the redemption that is found in Jesus. Now all of this can sound harsh. This is God doing this. God has done this to these people. God has made this happen. Why would God do this? Why would God do this to an entire culture? Why would God do this to all of Jerusalem All of Judah in this text and any number of cultures in our day. We're given the answer to this in verses 8 through 12. Notice how verse 8 starts. For Jerusalem has stumbled. What God has done in verses 1 through 7, He has done because of what Jerusalem and Judah have done in verses 8 through 12. The actions they've taken in verses 8 through 12 have led God to take away their stability, to put them in crisis because they desperately need the redemption that is found through the Messiah. Now, the people, essentially what you see is they have turned on God. They have turned away from God. This is what it's going to talk about over and over again in verses 7 through well, 9 is what we're going to look at. And the way the people have turned away from God is described in a variety of ways. They have turned away from God in word and deed. Their speech and their actions are against the Lord. Now, this could probably be a summary of everything else the rest of this passage is going to talk about. It's meant to show us an almost complete turning away from God. This isn't the picture of... 
people who are trying to be faithful but stumble and fall. That's not what's happened. They're not looking to be faithful, trying to be faithful, but they wrestle with it and they fall. No, no. They have gone off. They have turned completely from following the Lord. Their words are not the words of the Lord. Their actions are not the actions of the Lord. And they're turning away from God in word and deed. It's part of what's caused God to put their culture into crisis. They have defiantly turned from God. The last of verse 8, it says that they have... Speech and actions are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. The idea of them rebelling against His presence or His glorious presence is basically rebelling in His presence. It's the same sort of an idea of telling your kid, don't, don't touch that pew. And them looking you right in the eye and going, that sort of defiance that they have. That's the picture here. Jerusalem, because of the temple, was seen as the place where God dwells. God was there. And to sin like this in Jerusalem, in the city of the great king, was to look him right in the eye and do what he has said not to do. It was an act of defiance. Defiantly turning from God is part of what has caused God to put their culture into crisis. They have openly and proudly turned from God. The expression of their faces testify against them. They display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. The wording here about the expression of their faces testifying against them, them displaying their sins like Sodom and not trying to hide their sin, speaks of them openly and proudly turning from God. They weren't in any way trying to hide their sin. It wasn't... That they were pretending. I mean, at this point, they weren't even pretending really to try to serve God. They weren't hiding because of what people might think. Instead, it was, I do what I want to do. And it doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter what our covenant with God says. I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to live to please me. I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to do my own thing. And so they openly and defiantly turned away from God. There was no shame. It's kind of like later when it talks about they they could not blush because of their sin. They were proud of their sin. They were proud of the actions they were taking. It was not a shameful, secretive thing at all. And their open and proud turning from God is what part of what has caused God to put the culture into crisis. And then they've turned from God to their own harm. Woe to them. They have done evil to themselves. Now the kick in the pants of all of this, of what we're seeing, is the, the the only person they're really hurting is themselves. Now I'm sure their day is probably much like ours, and they saw their sin and turning from God as a form of freedom uh, and a form of breaking the chains of religion that had for so long bound them. Probably some of them saw their turning away from God as a way to stick it to the religious establishment that they didn't like. That they saw it as a way to, to live in their freedom and, and to do what no one can tell me what I can and can't do. I am a free person. But in the end, the people being harmed by their sin and turning from God was them. They weren't like hurting God. And they weren't hurting the religious establishment. It was them. They had forgotten or perhaps they never knew All God's laws and all God's commands were for their good, for the sake of their flourishing. And by sinning and turning away from God, they were cutting themselves off from the flourishing God had promised He would pour into their lives. From their sinning and their turning from God, they were bringing consequences and disaster onto themselves. The only person being harmed by their sin ultimately was them. They were destroying themselves. And because they're harming themselves and they're turning from God, God puts their culture into crisis. So they'll see the need for redemption. God removes cultural stability to put the culture in crisis so they'll be ripe for redemption. This isn't all God does. God also judges sin impartially. Verse 13, it says, 
the Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. Now, this is interesting. He is judging. He's going to arise to contend with the people of the culture he's putting to crisis and he's going to judge them. Now, studying this, I don't think it's judgment like seven bowls of revelation judgment. Right? It's not that kind of a judgment. I think judge here is meant in a judicial sense. Contending is God as a prosecuting attorney. And he is saying, this is what you've done wrong. This is the way you're living. This is what's going on. And then God as judge is saying, you're guilty. You're guilty of this sin. You have done these things. You are guilty. Right? God is, it's not the judgment of pouring out His wrath upon them. It is the judgment of prosecuting them for their covenantal violations and letting them know they are guilty. They deserve the punishment that is falling upon them. The people are facing judgment from two specific sins it mentions in this passage. First, God will judge oppression and injustice. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the leaders of his people. And God speaking says, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The goods stolen from the poor are in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and oppressing the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of armies. The wealthy people. And the influential people in the culture had used their wealth and position to increase their wealth and strengthen their position at the expense of others. Particularly, they had taken advantage of the poor and the helpless. Now, in, in this culture, certain groups were basically considered helpless. Widows, orphans, other groups. And what it meant by helpless was they had no recourse. If someone committed injustice against them, there was nowhere they could go. A, a, an orphan as a child could not go to court and testify and say, this person did me wrong. A widow without a child to stand for them could not go to court and say, this person did me wrong. And because of that, it made them helpless in society. They were often the targets of oppression and injustice because they had no recourse. In the same way, the poor were often the most vulnerable of society because they didn't have the money to do anything. Right? They, they didn't have maybe the standing in the community. They didn't have the money to try to fight and to say, they have done me wrong. And so the poor, the widows, the orphans were often the target of the people, of those in power, those in wealth, to oppress, to commit injustice against, to line their own pockets because they knew there was no recourse for those people. This is what's going on here. They are, I mean, notice the, the exact wording. You have devoured the vineyard. I don't think that means a literal vineyard they've devoured. I think it means that they've basically gone to the poor and the helpless and they have raided them and taken everything from them and made them poorer, more helpless, worse off than they were. We see this because... The goods that were stolen from the poor were in their houses. I mean, imagine somebody coming into your house. Not, not even like at night or, or while you're off on a trip, they break a window and they come in. They just boldly walk into your house and they take your stuff and they put it in their house. And when you go to the police, the police say, I don't care. The person who did it is far more important in culture than you are. You're a no one. You have no money. You can't benefit me. You're just a widow. You can't even testify. That's what was going on. That's the kind of image of what was happening here. They were oppressing the point they were crushing them. And again, I don't think it's meant literally they put them down and just like stomp them into putty. I think it's meant the hardcore oppression. Think about a poor person. Where do they get any money at all from? They have to work for the wealthy person, don't they? Well, if you don't work these extra hours, I'm not giving you anything. You've worked the extra hours, but I don't have the money today. You come back tomorrow, work twice as hard, and I'll pay you for both days. All of which was against the law, by the way. The law of God was, was told them not to act this way. In fact, not only were they not to oppress the poor, not only were they not to be an unjust people, 
God had gone so far as to tell them they were to do the opposite. Right? Look at this. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice for the afflicted and the destitute. Not only were they not to harm them and do oppression and injustice, they weren't even to turn a blind eye to it. The people of God were not meant to just allow it to happen over here and pretend they didn't see it. They were to actively defend them, actively take up for them, vindicate them if they could, get justice for them if they could. This is the way God expected them to be. This is not how they were. They had not only failed to take up for the poor and the helpless, but they had actively oppressed them and been unjust toward them. They were guilty of oppression and injustice and God will always judge oppression and injustice in a people and in a culture. And then God will judge pride and indulgence. We see in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and they walk with heads held high, seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps and jingling anklets on their feet. First, notice they're, they're haughty, they're proud. Given the context of what we see, I think it's safe to say their haughtiness, their pride is connected to their wealth and their position. I think it would also be safe to say their haughtiness is directed at the poor and the helpless. They thought their wealth and position made them better than those who were poor and powerless. And so they looked down upon them. Since they looked down upon them because they were better than them, they took no concern for them. Of course, it seems obvious to say that oppressors rarely care about those they oppress. But it's a point we must see because, again, of what God had said. God had specifically spoken of how his people were to treat the poor. And this is Deuteronomy, so this is before they even conquered the land. This is always a part of God's intention for His people. He says, if there's any, is there any poor person among you? One of your brothers? Any in your towns or land in which the Lord your God is giving you? Then here's what you shall do. Don't harden your heart or close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and generously lend him enough for his need and whatever he likes. Now think about the picture there. Harden your heart. Harden your heart is to come up with these reasons why you don't help them. They deserve it. They've made bad choices. Whatever. These reasons. Close your hand is to obviously keep it. If I've got my hand closed, you can't get the cough drop. What I'm supposed to do is have an open hand so that those who need it can get it. To give them enough. Not to say... Be warm and well fed. But to help them in that time of need. Same chapter. A few verses later. You shall give generously to him. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. Now this is cool. This is a, I think it's a dual. And in all your undertaking. I think this is a dual picture. On the one hand. There's a reason God has blessed them with enough. There's a reason God had blessed them with houses and lands and prosperity. And it was so they could help the poor in the land when they had need. At the same time, as they helped the poor in the land as they had need, God would bless that work and that undertaking for their actions to help the poor. Why would they do this? Because the poor will not cease to exist in the land. There will always be poor people. A fallen, sin-cursed world will always have poor and powerless people. Therefore, I'm commanding you. Commanding. So it's not a suggestion. It's not an idea. This is what God commands His people. You shall fully open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. God expected His people to be generous and to help the poor and the needy so long as there were poor and needy in the land. And there would always be poor and needy. And so God's people were always meant to be generous. But rather than be generous... They had lived a life of indulgence. Rather than helping the poor, they had lived a life of opulence for themselves. 
We're not going to take time to read all that it says in verses 18 through 24. But just notice the stuff that they have. Why is God taking time to mention all of this stuff that they have? What would be the point of that? The point is, the poor had languished outside their gates. And rather than help the poor, they had bought more for themselves. They had done for themselves. They had indulged themselves. They had not cared about those out there. They had put more and more and more in their pockets, more and more and more in their hair, more and more and more on them, and anathema to them. Just do take care of yourself. It, it's, it's God highlighting the opulent and indulgent lifestyle they lived while the poor languished outside without. Their living in indulgence and opulence while the poor around them did without is significant for two reasons. One is what we've seen in the Psalms and in Deuteronomy about how the people of God were supposed to live. The other is the reference to Sodom in verse 9. The expression of their faces testifies against them and they display their sin like Sodom. We're familiar with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story. I read it in my daily Bible reading yesterday. The wicked sin of the place. But I want you to think for a second. I want us to do a a test. When you think about the wicked sin of Sodom, name it in your head. What is the wicked sin that God that brought about the fire and brimstone on them? You have it. You have the word, the name. Is it this? Behold, the guilt. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, plenty of food, carefree ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. So they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Notice the sins of Sodom. Arrogance and haughtiness. Opulence and indulgence while neglecting the poor, the needy. Committing abominations before the Lord. The abominable sin of of Sodom, most people think of, is not the only sin of Sodom. It's a sin and it was a part of the problem, to be sure. But it's not the sin that brought about the judgment. Sodom was guilty of the same things the people of Isaiah 3 were guilty of. They were guilty of arrogance and haughtiness, indulgence and opulence while neglecting the poor. And for those sins, God removed Sodom. Not just the one, but for those sins as well. The people in Isaiah 3 are guilty. Arrogance and haughtiness, indulgence and opulence while neglecting the poor. And God was going to enter into judgment with them because of that. They were guilty. Pride They were guilty of indulgence. They were guilty of haughtiness and opulence. And God will always judge pride and indulgence. God removes cultural stability and God judges sin impartially so that he can bring a culture to the place where they would see their need for redemption. And then finally, God saves people mercifully. Chapter 4, verse 2. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth will be pride and the beauty of the survivors of Israel. What God speaks about in the rest of Isaiah 4 is about salvation in one way or another. Salvation has been the point of all God has done up to this point. God put this culture in crisis so it would be ripe for redemption. God has judged their sin So they'll be ripe for redemption. So much of what God does in our world today is because people need to see their desperate need for the redemption found through faith in Jesus. This is often why God makes people's lives difficult. Their sin is destroying them and they need to see their need for Jesus. This is why God convicts people of sin. Their sin is destroying them and they need to see their need For Jesus. 
chapter 4, verse 2, we introduced to something or someone called the branch of the Lord. Unless I'm mistaken, this is the first mention of the branch. And while it's the first, it's not the last. The phrase becomes a significant symbol for the Messiah. When we get to Isaiah 11, we're going to read about it again. The branch is the one who would come from the family of King David. He would sit upon David's throne. The Spirit of the Lord would rest fully upon him. He would judge and act fairly. He would be a banner of salvation to the world. And under his rule, there would be such peace and harmony. Calves and yearlings would be safe among lions. In Zechariah 3, 8 and 9, the branch will remove the guilt of the land in one day. Of course, many passages talk about that when the Messiah comes, he would take away sin. He would pay the penalty for our sins. None as clearly as Isaiah 53 which details probably more clearly about the suffering the Messiah would endure for the punishment of sin than any other Old Testament passage. He suffered sin so that others could be saved from sin. All of this is meant to point to Jesus, the Messiah, who came and died for our sins. In his death, Jesus declared it is finished. The veil of the temple, symbolically separating God and humanity, was torn down. In a single day, Jesus took away the guilt for our sins. Now we can be saved through faith in Him. God removes cultural stability. He judges sin impartially to put the culture in crisis so they will see, so they will be right for the redemption that is found through faith in Jesus Christ. Before we close, we've talked a lot about the culture of Judah, Jerusalem. Let's think about our American culture in light of what we see in Isaiah 3 and 4. Do we see a loss of cultural stability in our nation? Do we see a measure of a loss of economic stability? Do we see a measure of a loss of leadership stability? Do we see a measure of a loss of societal stability? Do we see a measure of a loss of optimistic stability? Do we see people turning from God in word and in deed? Do we see people defiantly turning from God? Do we see people openly and proudly turning from God? Do we see people turning from God to their own destruction, destroying their own lives through their sin and the actions they're taking? Do we see the kind of sin God judges impartially? Do we see oppression and injustice? Do we see pride and indulgence? Do we see any of those sins, any of those things in our culture? If so, what does that tell us God might be doing in our culture right now? And I think there's two ways we could answer it. There is the, if the foundations are destroyed, what can society, what will the righteous do response of, whoa, oh, oh my goodness. Or there's the way disciples of Jesus are meant to respond. And we look and we see this is the work of Almighty God. The sovereign God of the world is destabilizing things to make our culture ripe for redemption. Because the reality is the sin people are giving themselves to, it does not satisfy long term. In an immediate, for a season, it does. But the long term consequences and destruction does not satisfy them. God is doing His work in our culture to prepare people so they will see their need for Jesus. So for us as disciples of Jesus, rather than looking at what's wrong in our culture and giving in to anger or anxiety or hand-wringing, we need to see this as God. The sovereign God is putting our culture in crisis intentionally. So they can be the people around us can be ripe for redemption. Therefore, we must be busy about the business of making disciples of all nations. There are no telling how many people all around us are just desperate for the little hope, any hope, the hope that's found in Jesus. And we have to take this to them. What one last thing in just a two minutes before we dismiss. I think there's two ways we can respond. We can respond with 
fear and hand-wringing. Or we can respond as it talks about in verses 10 through 12. If we're righteous in verse 10, say to the righteous, it will go well with them. For they will eat the fruit of their actions. If we're righteous, keep being righteous. If we're living for Jesus, keep living for Jesus. Say to the wicked, woe to them. It will go badly for him. For what he deserves will be done to him. Say to the wicked, you're hurting yourself. You eventually reap what you sow. Say that to them. Tell them about their need for Jesus and the way they're destroying their lives. And 12, my people, their oppressors treat them violently. Women rule over them. My people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. Tell people what's going on. Don't keep it a secret. If we look and we see the culture in crisis that God is doing this to make people right for redemption... Don't keep that to ourselves. Tell people, look at this. This violence is a sign something is wrong. You need Jesus. The way our leaders are is a sign we need Jesus. Our culture is in crisis. The direction the leaders are taking you is the wrong path. Turn to Jesus. So the question, how are we going to respond? Fear? Anger? Hand-wringing. Are we going to respond as the proclaimers Jesus intends for us to be? Let's pray. Father, we love you today. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for all you've given and done. Help us to have eyes that see what's going on in our culture. Help us have eyes to see your hand at work. And how you are putting our culture in crisis so people will be ripe for redemption. Father, let us encourage those who are doing right, those who are living for you. Let us tell them to keep on. It will be worth it all someday. Let us tell those that are living in sin. It's destroying you. It's going to ruin your life. Turn to Jesus. Let us be proclaimers. Lord, as Paul talked about in, in Ephesians, have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And reprove them through the word of God and tell people to turn to Jesus. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.